Well, today we start the last of the five solas or alones in Scripture coming out of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, uh, this October, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. And if you've studied history at all, you know that was part of a much larger movement that, that began centuries before, continued after. Uh, but it was, it was a defining moment of someone, just one of many, that were taking God's Word, pouring over it, and taking what the church of their day was teaching and saying, there are some things that don't line up here. We have some questions. And those questions grew into concerns, and they dug deeper and deeper into Scripture, and they reclaimed what the early church taught. And I hope you've sensed that through this. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these great reformers, they weren't just one day saying, hey, let's do something different. We've got a better idea. That's not what they were doing. They're looking at the New Testament and and the Old Testament. They're looking at the eternal Word of God. And they're saying, we've gotten off track somewhere. They weren't bringing something new. They were bringing something very, very old and original and what the early church was really holding on to. And so we've gone through these in an order that I set, and I want you to understand that. There's no specific order to these. This is just what I thought would work well for our series. And so today we come to the last one, the last sola, that's the Latin word, or alone. This one is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We're going to spend two weeks on this, as we have with each of the five principles. And I was thinking today, what's What's sort of an idea or a word picture or a concept that would help to introduce this? What would be really riveting and grab your imagination and just help to tie all this together? I try to do that in my sermons. And from time to time, people come up to me and say, I really appreciate the way you do that. So I've got something I think is really, uh, I, I think you'll really engage with this. It's grammar. Ready? You excited about grammar? Anybody? Yeah. Specifically, prepositional phrases. Are you excited now? Yeah. I tried to find a really cool, like, schoolhouse rock pictures for that, but uh, there were a few, but they just didn't capture the emotion, I thought, of the the prepositional phrase. At their heart, each one of these five things is a prepositional phrase. Now, the way I've written it in English, you can't tell. but, But if I could put kind of the full nuance to it, It's talking about something that is according to Scripture alone, something that is through faith alone, something that is by grace alone, something in Christ alone, and something that is to the glory of God alone. And if you, like I'm sure all of you do, study grammar, um, you know that prepositional phrases can't stand on their own, right? They modify something. They describe or define something. They need a subject. And so we have to ask, What is the subject of these five solas, or alone, these important prepositional phrases? What is it they are modifying? For the Reformers, as they looked at what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, and they looked at what Scripture was saying, the key fundamental difference between the two that they really arrived at, putting everything together, was a difference about this wonderful, deep, rich theological concept known as justification. Justification means how is it that God declares somebody righteous? When we stand before God in his judgment 
And he is saying whether or not we're going to get into heaven, whether or not he accepts us, whether or not our sins have been forgiven, that is the concept of justification. Are we made right before God or not? And the question is, how? How does God justify us? How does he remove our sins and the punishment from or for our sins? Well, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that according to their traditions, God removes sin through Jesus Christ, yes, but not just Christ alone, because then we have to add to what Christ did, our own works of righteousness. We have to be baptized into the church. We have to participate in the sacraments. We have to do penance to overcome our day-to-day sins. We have to hope for the, the anointing of the extreme unction before we pass away. And even then, there's this time of purgatory to pay off what we still owe. And so it was Christ plus Christ justifies us, but we have to add to it, it's not enough. And so when they reclaim these five key principles, what they're saying is that contrary to tradition, we learn about justification only according to Scripture. Scripture alone. So we're not going to take the teachings of humans on these things. We're going to take the very word of God. And that led to everything else that we learn through Scripture alone that justification is by grace alone. There is nothing good in and of ourselves that we come to God. No acts of righteousness we could possibly do to say, yes, Christ did something great and look at all these wonderful things I have done. It is only the grace of God. And our only response to that grace is not works to earn it or to justify ourselves. It is faith to receive it, to believe in what Christ has done. So justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. And finally, justification is in Christ alone. It is because of what Christ did, not because of what we have done. So that's summarizing where we've come so far in the series. Today, in many ways, in this last of the solas, we're looking at the outcome of all of this. What happens when we understand justification from Scripture, through faith, by grace, in Jesus Christ, what happens? And there was a huge shift that took place. Because if we earn our own justification, if there's anything that we could claim in and of ourselves, then we can say, God, look at us. Look at what I've done. We could stand before God in the holiness of that moment and His splendor and His glory, and we could stand there and say, Christ did something really great. God, I finished it off. Aren't I great. But that's not the picture that Scripture gives us. Scripture gives us that because all of our justification, our salvation is from God, His power, His grace, who gets the glory for our salvation? And the answer is God alone. God alone gets all the credit for our salvation. We have nothing to point to in ourselves to claim any glory for our own salvation. So I want to look at the time of the Reformation as we've been doing throughout this series, take the theme, look at what it meant to them there. And obviously this is a much bigger subject than we can ever cover. So we're just going to pull out a couple tidbits and then we'll go to Scripture and say, okay, this is what they taught. That's great. But we're not here to listen to or learn primarily from humans. We're here to learn from God. So let's go to Scripture and see what Scripture teaches Now, to go there, we have to understand at the heart of this was this difference 
on the concept of justification. We all want to make ourselves right. We all want to think that if I can just do the certain steps and and just work a little bit harder, that I can justify myself. I can make myself good enough and righteous enough. And the Roman Catholic view was exactly that. God does some, we do the rest. We have to work. Which means we get to take some credit for our salvation. We get to say, look at this wonderful thing that I have done. Look at what makes me righteous. Look at what I have done. And Luther and Calvin and the rest of the reformers, as they studied from Scripture, what they saw was that there is nothing that we can claim. We can't take any credit. Anything that we could claim was just dirty rags in light of God's holiness and in light of what He has done for us. We bring nothing to our own salvation. And we've been talking about that in the previous weeks as we've walked through this. Luther wrote, It is true that the doctrine of the gospel, it's the good news about Jesus Christ, takes all glory, wisdom, and righteousness from men and ascribes them to the Creator alone who makes everything out of nothing. He says, if we are truly going to hold on to the fact that salvation is from God alone and not of ourselves, then we need to understand He gets the glory for all of it. Now, let me just look at one particular topic where we see this. And it's the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory. And again, my goal in the series is not to beat up our friends in the Roman Catholic Church. That's not my goal. But we do want to hold up Scripture, and and we're looking at this historically, and this is what the Reformation, or the time of the Reformation, was dealing with. And we see this, I think, in the concept of purgatory. The concept of purgatory, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is that God saves us, yes, through Christ, absolutely, but that it's not enough. As I said before, you still have to participate in the sacraments, do acts of righteousness, and even that will not be enough. There are things that we will have to atone for in the life to come, in purgatory. Hundreds of years, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And so what they taught was there are things we need to do now to pay off that debt so we don't have to do it then. And they called those indulgences. And during the time of Luther, of course, this had become just... A, a horrible situation of real bad teaching and, frankly, abuse upon the people. These indulgences were used to rob the poor and give the money to the church to build their cathedrals, to line the pockets of the power structure in Rome. But think about it for a second. Who gets the credit? Could you imagine a day... Let's just say, according to this viewpoint, that one day we're all in eternity with Jesus Christ, right? We've already done our time in purgatory, and we're standing there, and we're comparing. Well, how long were you in purgatory? Well, I I was there for a thousand years. And they turn around, how long were you in purgatory? Oh, man, I was there for 500,000 years. Um, Well, what made the difference? Well, you know, I was pretty bad. And you ask them, well, what made the difference for you? How come you weren't there that long? Well, actually, I worked really hard before and, you know, I did all these things and I was able to shave these years off my time in purgatory. What's missing from that whole conversation? Jesus Christ. Has nothing to do with it. 
and yet when you read scripture, every aspect of our salvation is saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. And so this concept takes all the credit for our salvation off of God and it puts it on us. And the reformers saw this. John Calvin, who kind of followed shortly after the time of Luther and was really the, I would say, the principal theologian of the Reformation. He writes this, and I'll just warn you, it is blunt and it is harsh. Calvin wrote, Purgatory is a deadly fiction of Satan, which nullifies the cross of Christ, inflicts unbearable contempt upon God's mercy, and overturns and destroys our faith. For what means this purgatory of theirs, but that satisfaction for sins is paid by the souls of the dead after their death? Hence, when the notion of satisfaction is destroyed, in other words, when justification from God is taught, purgatory itself is straightway torn up by the very roots. But if it is perfectly clear from our preceding discourse that the blood of Christ is the sole satisfaction for the sins of believers, the sole expiation, the sole purgation, what remains but to say that purgatory is simply a dreadful blasphemy against Christ? Friends, that's what happens when truth from God's word is applied to the weak teachings of frail humanity. And it's harsh. But I have to say, Calvin is exactly right. When we take the work of our own salvation off of Jesus Christ and claim it for ourselves in any way, shape, or form, we also take the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in the cross and the resurrection, and we strip it off the cross and we put it on ourselves. And we try to stand before God and say, you have to accept me because look at what I have done. And that is a dangerous, dangerous and heretical thing to do. And so the glory of God alone, as they sought Scripture and they, they redefined or reclaimed what salvation is through the Gospel... This concept of glory and glory from God and for God alone in our salvation rose to the surface. If our justification, our salvation is all from God, then God gets all the glory for why we are saved. This is important because during the time of the Reformation, there was a lot of movement going on in the culture. I said earlier in the first service, there were kind of the seeds, the beginning of the Enlightenment. Somebody came up to me later and said, I thought the Enlightenment had just appeared a couple hundred years later, which is true, uh, but there were seeds there. And it was really the Renaissance. That would have been a better term to use. But what you had was this beginning of a question. Do I have to accept what the power structure teaches me or says to me? Do I have to accept what the kings and queens say? Do I have to accept what the Roman Catholic Church? This wasn't just the Reformation. This was going on in the culture at large. And it was the beginning of what later would become to known as individualism. And it is, I would say, the beating heart of our culture today. Rugged, ragged, radical individualism. When you turn on the TV, when you look at entertainment movies, when you listen to the news what we are seeing is you are the master of your own fate. You do what's right for you, what makes you happy. You are the sole authority of the universe, no matter what anybody says. That's at the heart of our culture. 
And, and the Roman Catholic Church looked at what the reformers were doing and teaching and preaching. And what they said was, if you continue down this road, you're just going to give way and give food to individualism. The Roman Catholic Church was absolutely right in that. The Protestant ethic and idea and, and concept and theology has a tendency to devolve or degrade into individualism. You do what you want. You seek the experience with Christ that you want. However, it was this concept of the glory of God alone that fought against that. And and frankly, I think if we can reclaim it today, it still fights against it because understanding that our salvation is for the glory of God alone immediately says, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's all about God and His glory. Calvin said, For whatever the philosophers may have ever said of the chief good, in other words, the most important reason or the highest thing that we should do, it was nothing but cold and vain. For they confined man to himself, while it is necessary for us to go out of ourselves to find happiness. The chief good of man is nothing else but union with God. Our greatest purpose in this world and in our lives is not going to be found in us. What I like, what I want to do. That's not where my joy is going to come from. The chief good of all humanity is going to be found in God, in His glory. Friends, this is why, and I know people kind of chuckle at it, but it's why I use the phrase all the time, God is God and I am not. Because it's a constant reminder to me, hey Dave, you're a stupid idiot. You're just you. You're human. You're frail. You falter. You make mistakes. But God is eternal and sovereign and all-powerful. He's God. You're not. Don't try to do His job for Him. And we all need that in our lives. And it's holding on to this aspect of the glory of God above all else that keeps our own human frailty in perspective. You see, for the reformers, they understood, as Calvin went on to write, for until men recognize that they owe everything to God, nothing that we claim for ourselves, they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by His fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. And that's where I love that video. Why did she do what she did? I would say ultimately it was for the glory of God. She didn't know where the, the boxes were going. She didn't see the children. She didn't get the gratitude from them. Letters weren't pouring in. Thank you for what you did. She wasn't famous. I had never heard of her. I'm guessing you haven't either. And yet here is a woman in the quietness and the solitude of her own life who said, I don't know what else I can do. I can't get up and preach. I can't get up and teach. I I can't do these things that everybody seems to think is really important. I can't do that, but man, I can sew. And she sowed for the glory of God. And here's where the glory of God, this huge concept, is just a blessing in these simple things. Because it means that the simplest of things done for the glory of God is participating in the grand plan of all that God is doing. The first of the four solas, or these alones, show us that we bring nothing to our own salvation. It's all of God and from God and by God. 
And that's summed up in this fifth one, to God's glory alone. Not to the glory of the church that has given us these wonderful ways to justify ourselves. Not to the glory of ourselves who have done such wonderful work to make ourselves righteous. We stand before God knowing we are wicked, wretched sinners. And so when we are saved, it is all the credit going to God. Now, as I said earlier, this is great. I find what they taught in the Reformation to be powerful. I find it to be life-giving. I find it to be exciting. I love speaking about these things and thinking about these things. But ultimately, the first of the five solos we looked at is Scripture alone. Is this in Scripture? And so that's where we turn to now. Do we find the glory of God in Scripture? That's a pretty obvious one, isn't it? But here's the corollary and really the crux of the issue. Do we find that this is what all of Scripture is about? Do we find in Scripture that this is what all of our salvation is about? Do we find in Scripture that this is God's highest purpose in everything He does? It is His glory. That's a harder question, isn't it? Then it's not just one happy Christian subject that we could study. It is the Christian subject for us to study And so we have to start with, what do we mean by glory? Glory is the radiance and demonstration of all that God is. It is the splendor of His greatness on display. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 talks about this vision that Isaiah has in the throne room of heaven. Uh, Later on, John in Revelation would have a very similar experience. And as he sees this this throne room of heaven, he he sees in, in some way God on the throne... And he's surrounded by these heavenly beings, these angelic beings. And it's almost like he struggles to describe them. And they're crying out, they're calling out constantly who God is. And, and the greatest summary of who God is is this. Holy, holy, holy. That's like holiness to the third power. That was their way in Hebrew thinking to say, this is holiness that defies description. It goes beyond counting. It is more holy than we can possibly imagine. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's two wonderful concepts here. One is who God is in and of Himself. He is holy. God is right in all that he does. There is no hint of sin within him. He is completely set apart from sin. He is holy. Now, God is holy whether he ever did anything or not. Think of it this way, and it's an imperfect example, but I'll try. Think of a a wonderful painter. Um, I like da Vinci because he was more than just a painter. He was also an inventor and just phenomenal. He's really talented. Right? Some people just have talent. Yes, they have to work to develop it and, and things like that, but they, they just have a phenomenal talent in and of themselves. Okay? If da Vinci never painted, would he be a talented painter? Now again, I'm not talking about practicing and developing the talent. Did he have that talent in him some way, shape, or form? And the answer is yes. Now, would you ever know it? Well, of course not. That'd be silly. I mean, we might have phenomenal painters here. I'd like to think I'm one of them, but I just don't paint because I don't want to prove myself wrong. So, you know, we, we might have people that are really talented in painting that just don't do it. I'm sure we have others that are really talented that actually paint. 
my point is this. There's who you are in and of yourself, and then there's the actual display of it. That's the difference between holiness and glory. Holiness is who God is. Glory is the demonstration of that. When God works, when he creates, when he saves, when he sovereignly oversees his his creation, when he brings about his plans and his purposes, and when we reflect that in our lives, his glory is on display. The glory of God is seeing, displaying who he is. And the Bible says that everything that God does is to display his glory. Let's look at a couple facets of this. Psalm 19 verse 1 talks about creation. Why is there stuff? Why is anything here? Why do we have trees and planets? And why anything? It says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Like an artist that, that creates a, a painting or a sculpture and you look at it and you say, wow, that person's really good at this. So when we look at creation, it displays the glory of God. And then we go on to Isaiah chapter 43. It gets more specific. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. And he's talking about saving people. He's talking about carrying out his purpose by gathering his people together, right? Why is God good to people? And here's the answer. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Do you know why you exist? Because you bring glory to God. We are all created for His glory. The people here in church and the people not in church. We we all, to some measure, display His glory because He is our Creator. I didn't create myself. I didn't knit myself together. I don't get to say, wow, you know, look at the mirror and go, wow, look how good of a job I did. No. I display the glory of God. Not as much as some other people, maybe, but we all display the glory of God. Why does God do anything? And this gets closer to why he saves us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says this, In him, this is in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So he's saying God had a plan. He looked through history and he saw those that he would save. And and it raises a question, why? Why does he save them? It says, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, do we get benefit from salvation, from having our sins cleansed and wiped away in our own justification? Do we benefit at all? Absolutely. But that's not the primary purpose of why God does it. The primary purpose is his glory. Romans 11.36 following on a very difficult, intense section of Scripture in Romans where Paul says, why did God take this very difficult path in history to work with the Jews and then the Gentiles? Why is he doing these things? And it says, verse 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The Bible is very clear on this point. God has a reason behind everything he does. And that reason is his own glory. There's another corollary to this. God will not share his glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. 
Now, we talk about in heaven that we will share in his glory, we will participate in, we get the benefit from his glory. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is stealing his glory. When someone, let's take the scripture's point of view here, in idolatry, when somebody says, I want to praise God, small g, for my crops, right? I want to thank him for the bounty of his blessings. And so I'm going to set up a pillar and I'm going to put a carved image of a crow on it or something. And I'm going to bow down to that. What you're doing is saying this glorious, wonderful thing that God has done is not actually God. I'm going to take the glory from there and I'm going to put it on something else. Now here's why this is important. When we say, I've done something good. God accepts me because of the goodness that I have done. I have worked really hard. I have done the penance. I have done the acts of righteousness. God accepts me because, yes, Christ, but look at what I have done. What we're doing, and this is what the reformers saw and why they responded so harshly. They said, you're taking the glory off of Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection and you're putting it on yourself. And God says, I don't share my glory that way. It's a very serious thing to do. Our salvation, the purpose of God in our salvation is for His own glory. The glory of God shines like a a beacon. It's like the spotlight that just shines through all of Scripture. It is all over the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that everything is about God's glory. It's the reason he does anything. But we have to ask a question. And I hope it's a question that's come up in your mind. Because it should. Is that right? Is it right for God to seek his own glory? See, there's a word when when you talk about seeking your own glory over everybody else's. It's known as being selfish. Is God selfish? And in one way, my answer is, Yes, he better be. And I want to show you why. You see, why is it wrong for us to put ourselves first? Well, it's because I'm a sinner. And, and no offense, but you're all sinners too. And so if for some reason I come up and I say, well, I'm better than you. Who am I to say that? I'm just a wicked, wretched sinner apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you say, well, I'm better than you, Pastor Dave, well, who are you to say that? You're just a wicked, wretched sinner apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to claim in and of ourselves. It's all about God. So that's just wrong for any of us to put each other over the other person. Secondly, we're supposed to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And when we make the main thing me, or in your case, you, and you say that you somehow are more important than anything else in this world, well, that's selfishness because you're putting your needs, your wants, your desires above all else. And that's not right. We all need to keep the main thing the main thing. We should keep God's glory at the forefront of everything that we do. Now, I would expect that God, being the all-wise, all-powerful creator he is, is probably much better at keeping the main thing the main thing than any of us. Right? I would expect that he would know what that main thing is. And that he would work really hard to keep that at the forefront of everything that he does. And what is the main thing? What is the most important thing in all of creation? What is at the beating heart of Scripture? Isn't it the display of the glory of God? 
if God was to make anything less than his own glory, the most important thing in everything that he did, he would be guilty of idolatry. God has to keep his glory first. When humanity takes their eyes off of God's glory and puts them on ourselves, we think we're going to find happiness, but we actually only find misery. The Westminster Catechism came later and was a a summary of Reformed thinking coming out of this time of the Reformation. And the first question, the first part of the Catechism asked, what is the chief end of man? What's the main thing, right? And do you know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because our greatest joy will always be found in God's greatest glory. That's the secret of keeping God's glory first. I think I saw that in the video of this woman. Did you see her eyes just light up with joy over what she was doing? She wasn't doing it for herself, but she was getting immense uh, pleasure out of it, an immense benefit out of it, because she was seeking God's glory first. Friends, when we turn our eyes inward to what can I do for my own salvation, my own eternal destiny, when our lives become consumed with saving ourselves, we are taking our eyes off of God's glory. And that's what happened during Luther's day. And frankly, I think even apart from the Roman Catholic Church, we still struggle with it today. We become so focused on ourselves. We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at the implications from Scripture about what God has done and the benefit that is to us when we keep God's glory first and foremost. And we're going to see that when we seek God's glory, we get the greatest good. Because His glory is the main thing. And my prayer, like the Reformers, is that each one of us would live looking at every moment of our lives, like this woman waking up early and saying, what can I do? I'm going to sew clothes. I'm going to sew clothes for kids that that need them. For the glory of God. Because this concept of to the glory of God alone takes everything that you do, everything you participate in, and it brings meaning and purpose. And you say, I can only do this. Yes, but you can do it for the glory of God. Oh, I only have these gifts, but you can use them for the glory of God. I only have this amount of time, but you can use it for the glory of God. Whether you're a mom, a dad, a kid, a construction worker, an engineer, whatever you are, you can do what you do for the glory of God. And that's why God saved you, for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so easily lose focus. And we so easily take our eyes off of you and put it on ourselves. And we like to lay out and define what we can do and how we can get better and and some self-improvement plan. Whether it's some religious structure laying out sacraments and penance or or it's just us and self-help books and, and us saying, look at what I've done, look at how far I've brought myself. God, we still rob you of your glory today. And I pray that we would see in our lives and especially in our own salvation, you do what you do for your own glory. 
And when you keep your glory the main thing, it is what's best for us. And when we keep our, your glory the main thing, that too is what's best for us. May we as a church and as individuals keep our focus on your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.